Oxo's two-in-one citrus juicer can juice lemons for a cocktail and oranges for juice. But the coolest feature might actually be its drip-free pouring spout. Product engineer Becca Del Monte had to enlist the help of gravity to design it. The pouring spout is actually lower than the rest of the product because then in order to drip, the liquid has to actually climb up against gravity. So as long as you make like a very sharply pointed spout, you can really keep that drip from traveling back down. Shop all products at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO. Better guaranteed. Hey, thanks to our presenting sponsor, Bob's Red Mill. Stay tuned at the break for their quiz. Hey guys, Bridget here. Now, before we start this week's episode of Proof, I've got a favorite ask. We've posted a link to a survey in the show description. Now, this is only our second season and we're still learning a lot. So we'd love to get some feedback from you on what you like and what we could do better. All that good stuff. And it only takes a few minutes, I promise. So tell us what you think. Now, on to the show. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. Uh, what up, Proof fam? It's your boy, Harry, a.k.a. H-Dub, a.k.a. Bull Boy, a.k.a. the food lover with the cool mother, back again for season two. And this time, I'm going to do a sick unboxing episode for y'all. Uh-huh, that's right. My new order just came in, and I'm hyped to share it with everyone. But remember, like and subscribe, hashtag Proof fam, hashtag ATK, hashtag Team Lancaster. Okay, let's see what we got here. Uh, okay, I had to lift it with one hand because I'm holding the microphone with the other. Oh, baby. Okay, this is going to be a good month. I can tell. Let's see here. We got a tomato that has a crease in it, so why it looks like a little butt. Uh, oh, we have one big zucchini with this weird little curve, so it looks like a letter J. And let's see what else we got in here. We have. Hey, Harry. Huh? Harry. What, what are you doing? Oh, Bridget. Hey. I was just, I, you know, I was just doing an unboxing video for the for the fans, you know, just trying to keep things fresh. <laughs> Okay, well, let me remind you that you are on an audio medium right now. Uh-huh, yep, true. Okay, yeah, fair point, good point. <laughs> okay, and what are you doing? It sounds like you're unboxing something, and it sounds like somebody's failed garden attempt. Uh, kind of. I, this is a box full of ugly foods, produce that has been deemed unqualified for sale at most grocery stores because it has imperfections or deficiencies. It's like a Frankenstein mashup of Blue Apron, the delivery service, a farm share, and a carnival freak show. And it's taken off. I mean, these days, for about $20, you can buy a box of refugees from the island of misfit produce and have it shipped straight to your door. And as long as you're not trying to practice your restaurant-grade plate garnishes, they're totally quality produce. Okay, Harry, uh, listen, uh, I'm really glad that you're back for season two, okay? Likewise, yeah, but thank you very much. <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and let you use Proof to make uh, a big old advertisement for ugly foods. Oh, Bridget, how could you? First of all, I would never shill myself out to the man like that, okay? Not even if they paid me anywhere in the range of, let's say, throwing some numbers out there, ten dollars to $15,000, check or money order sent to the following address, hey. three seven. Uh, We're not going to air your address on this podcast, Harry. Nope, nope, nope. 
okay, well, fine, Bridget. I'll find another way to pay off my student loans. But also, this won't be an ad for ugly produce because the issue isn't that straightforward. When I first pitched this episode, I thought I was doing a sort of food bowls part two kind of thing, a mostly lighthearted exploration of a food fad with a few surprises and enough jokes. So when my mom posted on Facebook, one of her work friends would comment, oh, he's hilarious. When will I see him on TV? And I could ride that high until season three. But nothing in life is easy. And once I started digging into this issue, I realized that this wasn't just some cutely marketed subscription service. Ugly produce is a question of efficiency. How do we combat the rapidly accelerating food waste epidemic in our country? But at times, it might come at the cost of other forms of efficiency. The boxes our food comes in piles up. The farms whose food we're saving are encouraged to continue overgrowing instead of limiting their crop yields. The extra food ends up in a home that simply throws it away. Ugly produce wants to attack important issues, but are its practices, like its peaches, slightly dented and a little off-kilter? The Department of Agriculture says that the United States wastes, on average, over $160 billion of food a year. That number includes about 50% of all grown produce. This hasn't always been the case. In fact, our annual food waste has more than tripled since World War II. But the battle for food preservation actually had its roots even earlier than that. I think, really, it's the turn of the century when people start to really think of food waste as an issue. That's Sarah Wasberg Johnson, the food historian. Yes, the food historian. What? It's the name of her website. It's like a bagel place calling itself World's Best Bagels. Did they do a study? Probably not. Are you going to challenge it? It's right there on the sign. Don't worry about it. Eat a bagel. But I digress. As Sarah tells it, a whole host of culture changes and shifts led to our approach to eating and saving food shifting as well. But particularly after the Second World War, changing sensibilities and palates began to have a major impact. So I think one of the things that happens coming out of the Second World War is obviously there's rising prosperity. People can afford to be pickier about what they eat. There's also, in some ways, an increased variety of foods, especially fresh foods available in grocery stores. And I think that that contributes a lot to food waste, not only in the home, but also kind of industry-wide, because there's all this fresh food just laying around waiting for people to buy it. And they don't necessarily always buy it. Grocery stores are one of the biggest sources of food waste. That's completely logical. The more fresh food that's around, the more fresh food there is to eventually go to waste. But how does that have anything to do with ugly foods? Is it only the abnormal shaped produce that's really going into the bin? That's a very valid question, Bridget. Produce in general makes up about one-fifth of the food waste in this country. And according to the United Nations, food that is deemed quote-unquote ugly makes up nearly 40% of that. Well, I'm assuming that ugly, in terms of produce, it pretty much means imperfect. Because I've read a little bit about how our brains are wired, and we're hardwired to look for imperfections. We love finding perfect things. So we search out the usual, 
any kind of pattern out there. We like to stamp it on a file. So say you're looking at a tomato and you think of the perfect tomato. Well, in your brain, the file will pull up that perfect image of a tomato. So we use those images of perfect things as a prototype and anything else is pretty much considered wrong. Yeah, no, that's 100% true. I actually talked to a neuroscientist about this and she described disgust as a survival mechanism. The emotion of disgust is there to help us survive, just like all of our other emotions. And what disgust is primarily telling us about is to avoid things that might poison us or might contaminate us with illness. Looking at something and assessing whether it might be toxic or whether it might be contaminated, and in both cases, bad for our health and mortality potential, is what we're doing when we're assessing something that looks potentially not so good. And related to this is the fact that we eat with our eyes first. So the first assessment we make about food is with our eyes. And we can either say, wow, that's like super appetizing and delicious and I'm all ready to eat, or gross, I better stay away from it. Rachel Hertz is a neuroscientist and author. Her books are called That's Disgusting and Why You Eat What You Eat. And she suggests a big part of wasting food comes from our natural and learned behaviors. In other words, the abundance of perfect-looking food weakens our tolerance for less-than-perfect options. Now, it's one thing to learn that the red berry is something that you shouldn't eat because it's going to poison you. It's another thing to say, well, this cucumber, you know, normally cucumbers are great. However, this cucumber looks strange. And there's a potential that if I consume it, I might get sick because maybe the reason it looks strange is because somehow it was contaminated or somehow it's altered in a way that's now indicating that it might not be so safe to consume. Well, what she said, that definitely makes sense, either from a psychology or evolutionary perspective. And maybe our attraction to perfection really did help us survive as a species. I bet it did. But what I find really interesting about this is that it's a luxury to be disgusted. I mean, if you're starving or you're in a position of being really super food insecure— and there's food that's got an insect crawling on it or it's squished or it's just really unappealing, you're probably going to take your chances with that food. Yeah, exactly. And Rachel actually hit on that point, too. So it's a privilege that we in the modern world have all these perfect looking things and have access to what we presume is is very healthy food all the time, that we can make the choice that if something has the tiniest bit of blemish, we're going to reject that and we're going to go with something which looks perfect because we assume the looks are what is the most telling about its perfection. The more that we're presented with the norm of things being a certain way, the more that we assume that that's the way they're supposed to be, and we're much less willing to accept variability. So if all the tomatoes always look identically perfect, and you see some come along that look all ugly and misshapen and a little splotchy and so forth, you're going to go, oh no, I don't want those. I want what I'm used to. I want the the perfect round, perfect red looking tomato. So at some point in our history, it became a privilege to be discerning about your food. And that privilege made it easier to waste food simply on the basis of its aesthetic appeal. So basically, the way that we now buy and store and shop for food, it has changed over time. And with each of those changes, we now have a huge increase in the amount of food that we waste. 
Right. That's the story of how we got here. And here is pretty unconscionable. We're letting half of the food that we produce in this country fall to the wayside. And that level of waste feels even more disturbing when you consider how many people struggle to put food on their tables on a daily basis. It was clear that solutions were needed. And when Blue Apron and other food subscription boxes began to take off in 2012, some savvy business owners saw a chance to make their impact. And that brings us back to where we started this episode, the ugly food box service and the high-minded idealists who started them. My name is Ashley Weingart. I'm the founder of Perfectly Imperfect Produce. Our mission is to reduce food waste and improve healthy food access uh, for everyone. My name is Riley Brock, and I'm the content manager over here at Imperfect Produce. We source food that otherwise would often go to waste or otherwise fall through the cracks of our food system and get undervalued or get lost, and we deliver it to folks' doors for a discount. Hi, my name is Evan Lutz. I'm the CEO and founder of Hungry Harvest, and I run a produce delivery service on a mission to fight food waste and hunger. Whoa, whoa, okay, okay, all right, settle down now, don't talk all at once. <laughs> I'm kidding. They're all recorded. Ashley, Riley, and Evan are all different power players in the world of ugly produce. Their companies send thousands of pounds of produce out to people around the country every year. And these companies all started around the same time, 2012, 2014, 2015. And in each case, like Evans, for example, they were responding to a perceived need for better, less wasteful food options in the communities around them. We wanted to look at these cities and say, hey, there's an opportunity right for change, no pun intended. And so that's why we, we chose to intentionally try to be as local as possible in each city that we're in. I'm kidding. I use that pun all the time. <laughs> so what happened now? I mean, why is there a sudden slew of these idealistic entrepreneurs that are really anxious to fix the problem? I mean, there's obviously many factors, but one of the big ones was this report that came out in 2012 from the Natural Resources Defense Council that changed everything. It's really a landmark paper that outlined the true magnitude of food waste in America. It's been cited like a million times at this point. What was so groundbreaking about that paper? Well, that's where they found that statistic we've been talking about a bit, that 40% of the food throughout the food system was going to waste. And that woke a lot of people up. I mean, if you grow 10 ears of corn, four are getting trashed. That's ridiculous. And a waste of four perfectly good potential elotes. <laughs> I will agree with you there, but 40%, that's a huge figure. Uh, I got to ask, what is the qualification? What's the definition of waste in this situation? Is it just any kind of food that's going to get thrown in the trash instead of having somebody eat it? Or is it specifically only farm-grown food? So the study dealt with all food waste, anything meant to be consumed by people that gets thrown away. And it looked at waste at several different levels, the production level, the places where the food is made, the distribution level, the places where the food is bought, and the consumer level, the places where the food ends up. And so when the numbers were so dire across the board, it turned this issue into the rare one that everyone could mobilize behind. Riley concurs. You know, college students in their dorms and congressmen and people working in the food industry and farmers. And I think it was a wake-up call and also a rallying cry um, because food waste is one of these unique environmental issues that is not polarizing. 
But as these companies started to catch on in their locales, they realized that the impact they could have didn't just have to be at that agricultural level. They could attack all three of those tiers at once through additional programs that delivered produce to communities in need or helped fight inherent inequality in food distribution. Food is a multi-tiered issue, and addressing it requires multi-tiered solutions. Evan explains Hungry Harvest strategies in this regard. We're going to 20, 30 different communities every single week, week in, week out, throughout the entire year, partnering with a school or a church or a hospital to actually go about selling this produce to the communities so they have a consistent place to purchase fresh fruits and vegetables. Our core belief is that in a country where we're wasting 40% of everything we grow, everybody in this country should have at least an option to buy fresh fruits and vegetables at an affordable price. Now, wait, so these companies are shipping out a bunch of, what, odd-shaped carrots every single week? And why would anyone, especially if you lived in a low-income house, why would you be sitting around saying, yay, the ugly squash is here? Well, that's actually a really interesting point, Bridget. I think when we hear the term ugly, we immediately have an image in our heads of what that entails. But the produce that is deemed unacceptable by stores often gets a lot closer to acceptable than we could even discern with the human eye. What qualifies as ugly produce is often remarkably subtle things. So it's honestly really small stuff, like size is a big one. Uh, Symmetry is a huge one. Like bell peppers have to be able to stand up on their own. You know, if they would fall over, they're not considered a number one bell pepper. You know, any sort of blemish or superficial scarring stores really don't like. Even things like coloration, like apples, especially, you know, if they're a hybrid of green and red, stores want a very specific breakdown of green to red coloration. And apple orchards do all sorts of crazy things to try to meet this, like they'll literally spread out reflective paper on the floor of the orchard or on the ground to try to bounce the sun back and get more even color. You know, things that have no impact on the flavor, but it's really just to make it look the way that they know stores want. So the reality is that if you're a produce buyer for Safeway or Walmart, you might be able to tell, oh, this apple is off spec. But if you're an average person at home, you won't be able to tell. And frankly, you won't care. So these companies are sending around boxes of barely blemished produce, both to people in need and people who are just tickled by the idea of a pear that bends weird. I mean, it's smart, I gotta say. A catchy name, an environmental advocate lean, and a product that's easy to buy and sell at value. No one at the farms are fighting particularly hard for produce they're not even allowed to sell. But you can't paint them entirely as opportunists. The people who work at these ugly produce companies are clearly passionate about the causes they're working in. For example, you gotta be careful not to set Riley off. And he's got theories on everything, including how the design of the modern refrigerator actually contributes to food waste. It sounds to me like you want to nerd out on this, and I kind of nerd out on it for a living. So I think the refrigeration thing is really important to underline here, not to shame anyone for having a refrigerator. Obviously, they're amazing. But I do think with the advent of refrigeration, and especially the modern refrigerator that I would say, I would argue is a little bit too big, it's really easy in modern America, I think, to buy more food than you can physically eat. And I think we're also blessed with the fact that food is cheaper now than it has ever been in human history. You know, fruits and vegetables are really perishable. So it presents us at home with this paradox where we have really cheap, really delicious stuff, but 
we don't value it because it's so abundant, it's so cheap, and because we can buy literally more of it than we can even see. You know, when you open your fridge, can you even see everything that's in there? You know, I've caught myself wasting food because it's literally at the back of the fridge. And that's a bunch of kale that I forgot that I bought, and then it wilts and gets sad, and I have to compost it. And so... I think you can't overlook the psychology of the modern refrigerator. I think it kind of changes the psychology of eating, you know, not to get too Michael Pollan on it or get too crazy, but the fridge has changed the game. Riley's on top of his stuff, which is exactly what you want from a company you're counting on to have an impact on this kind of policy. But even he admits that ugly produce might not be the be-all, end-all solution. Delivering ugly produce is not going to solve the food waste problem, and we don't think it will. You know, that's one of many steps we think people should be taking to reduce waste. You know, if you look at the graphs of kind of where on the pie chart is food going to waste, you know, farm-level waste, really what we're focused on is about, is less than 20% of the pie. It's over 40% of it happens in our homes. So any good-faith attempt to address food waste has to address both. Well, for a public relations person, I got to say, Riley sounds like a pretty honest guy, and he's raising some serious questions about his own business. You've got ugly food companies doing some great stuff on the surface, but maybe they're exacerbating the problem just a little bit. There's so much waste that I have in my own house, and I'm thinking about if I signed up for a weekly shipment, I'm going to get a big old box and lots of food to waste. So how is that any better than just letting the food get eaten by a cow? Yeah, you know what? This is an issue that came up when I was doing my research on this. Emily Atkin wrote an article for The New Republic about trying out ugly produce boxes, and she mentioned that when she was doing it, the boxes started piling up after just a couple of months. Now, to these companies' credit, when I got my ugly food box, it had instructions on how to sustainably dispose of all the different pieces that came with it. But, and I will fully cop to this, I am painfully lazy, and the box is, at this very moment I'm speaking these words, still sitting in my house. You know, these companies can encourage us to be our best selves, but a consumer who is set in their ways is hard to change. You can lead a Harry to water, but you can't make him drink, right? Yeah, because I'll just sit around until someone brings the water to me. Well, you know, I'm suspicious about A, everything, and B, Any company that says that they are focusing their marketing efforts on extending an opportunity for consumers to feel good about their purchasing or anything else, it just seems like if you were to peel back that feel-good mission just a little bit, you're going to see something under there that you might not want to see. That's 100% right, Bridget. It's easy to see feel-good operations and just feel good about them. But when it comes to an issue as thorny as this, it's important to make sure that you're giving it the full scrutiny it deserves. Are ugly foods the key to fixing our farms and ourselves? Or are they a way for us to avoid the work that we really have to do? It's impossible to talk ugly foods without also examining some ugly truths. And after the break, Harry delves into some of those ugly truths. It's time for this week's Bob's Red Milk Quiz. And today I'm joined by my colleague Dan Zuccarello, and he's here to be grilled all about Bob's gluten-free one-to-one baking flour. Okay, Dan, your team, I know they worked on a couple of gluten-free cookbooks right here at ATK, right? Yep, that's right. All right. So I'm completely thinking that you're an expert on gluten-free everything. Well, now you've really put on the pressure. (laughs) All right. Just steady on. We're going to jump right in. 
True or false, Bob's Red Milk gluten-free one-to-one baking flour is so simple to use, you can just replace it with wheat flour in any baking recipe. Oh, well, that sounds way too good to be true, but I think I got to go all in. It's It's so easy, right? It's true. It's got to be true. I hope it's true. (laughs) Hope no more. I can't fool you. It is true. It's crazy, but it's true. Bob's Red Mill one-to-one baking flour is specially formulated to create baked goods with great taste and texture. No additional specialty ingredients or custom recipes are required. For more information and a ton of delicious recipes, go to bobsredmill.com. Kohler sinks are incredibly functional, hard-wearing, and beautiful. And case in point, the White Haven Cast Iron Kitchen Sink. Now, it doesn't matter if your kitchen's aesthetic is traditional or contemporary, the elegant design of Whitehaven will work in any kitchen. It's got a deep, single-basin sink for easy cleanup, and the enameled cast iron is resistant to chipping or burning. The sink is going to last you for many years, and it's going to look good, too. Whitehaven is available in various sizes and colors, including indigo blue or black plum. And now I'm hungry. Kohler, for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Learn more at Kohler.com. A good tool can make experimenting in the kitchen fun. That's why Chef Steps created the Jewel. It takes sous vide cooking to the next level. I asked my test kitchen colleagues what they do with theirs. I actually sous vide sous vide a turkey once. I think vegetables can really benefit from it, too. So you can also sous vide starburst candy, and you can, like, arrange the color, sous vide it, and then they all kind of melt into one another, and you can make jewelry with it. I actually have a sous vide starburst necklace at my desk. Jewel. Perfect starburst necklaces? Every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use code ATK2019 to get $15 off. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. Code ATK2019. Before the break, we were speaking with reporter Harry Wood about how food waste in America got so out of control and the ugly produce evangelists that proposed to fix the problem. But like so many things, it really just is not that simple, is it, Harry? No, unfortunately, it's really not that simple. Ugly food companies like Imperfect Produce and Misfits Market sell themselves on their altruism. The money you spend on their services is justified by the positive impact that you create from using those services. And these companies have done a stellar job at building their images around this idea of a collective striving towards creating a more food-responsible future. But the truth is that imperfect produce businesses might not be as effective as they set out to be. And crop scientist Sarah Tabor would know. She's been on the front lines for 20 years. My name is Sarah Tabor. I am a crop scientist, and I've worked in agriculture for 20 years, the majority of which was not in a fancy crop science uh, position. I've done a lot of the, the grunt work, more like, you know, done some clearing trees, Done some supervising inmate crews, working with planting and harvesting berry crops. Done some pesticide applications. There are some uh, nematicides that are so toxic, and you also you can't smell or taste them. So if there's a leak, you don't know, and people just die. So they put tear gas in them. And after you're done, after the nematicide is gone, the tear gas is still in the soil. So we're like pulling off the tarps and getting tear gassed. So we've done that professionally. Yeah, so Sarah's out there getting tear gassed for the farmers. That's an, uh, um, I'd call it 
egregious level of sacrifice. But does she think that buying a box of imperfect food is also a level of sacrifice? Well, first of all, she wants to be clear. She's kind of tired of people coming to ask her this. Um, so the thing is, I'm not personally that interested in ugly fruit. I think it's just more that the public is very fascinated with ugly fruit and when they need somebody to talk about it, now my name comes up. <laughs> And who can blame Sarah for being a little tired of talking about this? As she herself points out, it's easy to see how focusing on rescuing the farms, the issue that many ugly food companies build their missions around, might be missing the point entirely. And again, I want to remind you that we're still talking about the farm and packing house, right? So where again is the majority of the food waste? It's not there. It's not even there. It's consumers just buying stuff and throwing it away. So 43% of the food waste is at the consumer level. 40% is at the retail and um, so like restaurants and grocery stores. So that's four-fifths of all food waste. And when we're talking about ugly fruit, we're focusing on like a very small percentage of what the total food waste is. So it's good to understand the system, but any time spent understanding like the front, the farm end of the system, like the sexy end of the system is kind of wasted because that's not even where the food waste is happening. Well, in other words, it sounds like, at least according to Sarah, that these ugly food subscription boxes are not addressing the root cause of food waste. Yeah, but even more than that, this ugly foods movement and all these bright-eyed, bushy-tailed entrepreneurs have helped create a narrative of helpless food being wasted by shadow groups that are out of the reach of the poor farmer and the unknowing consumer. But the issue is more difficult. Sarah says that indecision and poor judgment at every level affects the food waste dilemma in this country. You know, I was kind of doing some research on it. And every article on ugly fruit starts with a really powerful anecdote, right? Um, which is very different from data, but they start with very powerful anecdotes. And there was one, and I hope I'm remembering this wrong, but it was about a guy who'd grown 2,000 acres of spaghetti squash, and uh, which, which is a lot for a specialty crop like that. That's <laughs> a lot of acreage. And squash is a plant where the skin is very delicate and the, the vines, if you've ever grown squash, are super prickly. So if you have a lot of wind, those vines are going to scratch the fruit and it's going to cause, to some extent, cosmetic issues, but sometimes they break the skin. They can cause the fruit to rot very quickly or to lose a lot of weight and just dry up and mummify while you're shipping it to customers. So this guy planted 2,000 acres of something that is susceptible to wind damage like that. And in the article, he's kind of going on about how, like, this is a tragedy and no one wants to buy it because it's ugly. And I'm thinking, there's a lot more to it than ugly, son. And you planted 2,000 acres of this stuff that you should have known was susceptible to this kind of damage. And you didn't have a plan for if there was a very predictable kind of damage. What's wrong with you, dude? Uh, <laughs> but uh, so, so that's an example of business thinking that perhaps should be happening. But that's not really how agriculture works. I think that the ugly produce narrative is kind of suspicious. It's a very simple narrative. And nothing in real life is that simple, right? As Sarah tells it, we're focusing in entirely the wrong places, the sexy places, as she puts it, instead of the gritty ones that might have more impact. And this isn't the only place where our focus tends to drift away from the things we can actually help. She draws parallels between this and another major issue of our time with a sexy solution. You see this kind of thing constantly, right? With ocean plastic, you know, we're, we're freaking out and having straw bands and everything. Well, what's the actual number one contributor to ocean plastic? It's like abandoned fishing nets, right? So straws ain't going to do shit <laughs> for this problem, right? But that's a very easy consumer-centered problem where you can go, 
you flip your hair and you go, I don't use straws, I solved it. So you see examples of this all over the place is there are all kinds of industry groups that just kind of figured out like, wow, we can guilt people into all kinds of shit. So um, I really feel like food waste is just the next rendition of that. I can see where Sarah's coming from. Uh, she's pointing out the complexity of the actual world that we live in. It's easy to fool ourselves into thinking that our own individual purchasing choices are enough to impact real change. But the full picture is almost always more complicated. But I got to say, that does not feel as good as buying a three-legged carrot for the greater good, does it, Harry? I mean, I'll be perfectly honest. It's hard to talk to Sarah without feeling at least a little nihilistic. We're focusing on the wrong things. We're being fooled. We get fooled all the time by everyone. But she's quick to point out that this isn't as simple as good and bad, as us falling for a trick. It all comes from a deeper need, one that seemingly comes up more and more these days. I think people are really so desperate for a sense of control. It's kind of like, you know, if you're a kid and your parents are getting divorced and they're fighting all the time, you're like, it's because I was a bad kid. Because... The guilt of blaming yourself for everything is still less scary than acknowledging that you have no real power. <laughs> I think kind of being subject to a world that doesn't make sense is very scary, but we cope with it in unhealthy ways sometimes. We try and make up narratives about how we can stop it that don't actually have anything to do with reality. And so we waste a lot of time spinning our wheels when there are real solutions out there. They're just bigger. They're not individual consumer choices that you can make on your own with a snap of a finger. You have to collaborate with people. And that's kind of scary. And it takes longer. So there's not kind of that instant payoff gratification. But then how do we save the world? Well, stop blaming ourselves for everything. <laughs> I think when you talk to people about this kind of stuff, like they're really anxious. They're like fretting and just like panicking and sitting on pins and needles and turning themselves inside out to try and find a personal solution. And it's like, this is so far above our personal pay grade, you know? <laughs> so if it doesn't fall in our pay grade, whose pay grade does it fall in? Maybe if we're looking to have an impact on a societal level, we have to turn to the people who have the most power over society. I've been a member of Congress for 10 years, but I've been an organic farmer since the 70s. So I actually moved to Maine as a back to the lander and was really interested in growing my own food and growing food organically. And then I studied it in college. So I've always either had an organic farm or worked on food policy or just really cared about food and agriculture. Shelley Pingree is a U.S. representative from Maine's 1st Congressional District. She's a champion for agricultural reform in the United States. In 2017, she wrote the Food Recovery Act, a major piece of legislation designed to address all the different facets of food waste in our country. And she wants to make it clear that even though they might not be the solution, she's into ugly foods. They're a little bit of a Band-Aid on the flu, but I think that they're a really great idea. I just love the fact that they're out there. I mean, if nothing else, it introduces a lot of people to this notion that um, we've been trained in the grocery store to only purchase absolutely perfect-looking vegetables. I mean, part of the problem is the grading system. And sometimes the grading is all about cosmetics. It's not about flavor. It's not about ripeness or a lot of other characteristics that might actually make something better. But now even Representative Pingree is admitting that ugly food boxes are just a Band-Aid. So again, what is the solution here? Is there anything that we can do that's going to have some sort of measurable impact? Or 
is this a case where we just have to accept that we are powerless as individual people to stop any kind of serious food waste issues? Yeah, I know. I had the same question. It's like, where do we start addressing the issues? Everyone I talk to seem to have different opinions. Sarah also points to another area we could bolster, the oft-misunderstood food bank system in the United States. Now, when most of us think of a food bank, we picture, you know, picking up a few canned goods from your pantry, taking them to the Boy Scouts, they take it back to a different pantry, and then people pick it up. Now, food banks could be set up to accept perishable donations from grocery stores that are limited by sell-by dates. But setting up a food bank system that intercepts food on its way to being wasted would require planning, infrastructure, and money. It takes some logistics to make food banks work. You know, if we're going to use this kind of system where you can get fresh food to people, but it's only got a few days, you need to be able to move stuff quickly. You need to be able to store it and distribute in a cold chain. So basically... Nowadays, food banks need to have roughly the same distribution framework as just the grocery stores and mainstream food supply chain. It works out perfect if you have that infrastructure, but that infrastructure is really freaking expensive to build and it's expensive to maintain. So if we're talking about minimizing food waste, that's where a lot of it comes from is just that, you know, that three to five days of when the grocery store has to get rid of it, but it's still a few days left um, of good eating. So Food bank infrastructure is a really critical part of minimizing and, and getting rid of food waste. But that's not something you can fix with individual consumer choices. You have to like donate a hell of a lot of money to food banks to get them to work, right? So um, that's one of those things where it's a fantastic solution, but it's not an individual like, I'm shopping, I'm going to pick the right can on the shelf kind of choice. That is a collaborative community um, come together kind of thing. Here's the thing. I want ugly foods to be a no-holds-barred good thing. I want it to be a no-issue, 100% good-to-go, positive impact on my community and the environment at large. But when we're dealing with issues of social import, we have to be conscious of the ripple effects they can have beyond our immediate vision. Ugly foods have the potential to be a very good, small-scale way that we can tangibly affect our world for the better. But the hard truth is, we're past the point of small-scale measures. We need to be thinking bigger, broader, more drastic. Yeah, it sounds like this is not an either-or issue. It's more of an and issue. And we're not saying that people should throw out their fridges or that they shouldn't buy ugly foods. Ugly foods are not a bad thing. But in the whole picture, they're insufficient as an answer to the real problem of food waste. Yeah, we can totally go out and get ugly food boxes and call that a win, but we can't stop there. We have to keep looking for the ways that we can impact food waste all the way up and down the scale, from the consumer to the distribution to the farm levels, because all those things have to work together to help improve the state that our world is currently in. In the end, ugly produce lives up to its name. And not just because I'm currently staring at a squash that looks like Squidward's nose. It's an ugly issue. It's attempting to rectify an ugly truth of our world. It comes from an ugly chapter in our history, and it has some ugly skeletons in its closet. But in the same way that these companies are setting out to remove the stigma around the ugliness of these vegetables, maybe I also have to work to process the ugliness of ugly foods. While these companies have a lot of questions to answer, at their core, they are advocating for positive change. And I'll be honest, 
I want ugly produce to work because it's a way that I, even in a small sense, can help. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to go take all this ugly stuff and turn it into a vegetable stir-fry. Oh, but don't worry, the stir-fry will also be ugly. I'm really not a great cook. That's reporter, comedian, and ugly food skeptic Harry Wood. Now, Harry's also producer for Mobituaries with Mo Rocca. It's a great podcast where Mo digs into all of the people and things of the past that he finds really interesting, from the first Chinese-American superstar to the station wagon. It's irreverent, it's smart, and really deeply researched. The second season comes out this fall, and you can find it wherever you're listening right now. So where does this leave us? Sure, the problem of food waste is huge, and it's going to take real industry changes. But I still think that there's a lot that we can do to cut down on food waste right in our own homes. You can do a pantry challenge. And here's the premise. For one month, try to cook only using items that already live in your fridge, freezer, or pantry. I've done this a few times, and I've never been able to stay pure to the challenge. Again, it's 30 days. And I always end up picking up milk, eggs, and definitely coffee. But I'm always shocked at how many meals I can get from what's already in my house. It's a great way to save money, too. And then there's meal planning. Maybe your grandma or your great-grandma did this, but I am a huge believer in thinking through a week's worth of menus because it makes it super easy to buy exactly what I need and not a bit more. You can buy in-season and save for the off-season. Now, this does take some planning ahead. For instance, I love a good summer tomato, but I'm not so much of a fan of the kind that you can buy in February. So I've started canning them in summer, and I try to preserve any kind of fruits and vegetables that I can when they are at their best. And finally, if you have the means and the space, then I really recommend that you grow your own produce, because there's nothing that's going to challenge the concept that you might have in your mind of what produce should look like more than what's coming out of your backyard. And you're going to be proud to eat that three-legged carrot if you grew it yourself. If you want to check out that landmark 2012 study on food waste from the Natural Resources Defense Council, we've posted it on our website for you. And we've also posted a few reviews for food storage containers and other products that are going to help you cut down on your food waste at home. That's www.americastestkitchen.com slash proof. Go check it out. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our producer, associate producer, Caroline Rickert. Scoring sound design and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Editing by Caitlin Kelleher, Sarah Joyner, Jordan Pearson, and Connor Olmstead. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester. Post-production support from Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Jack Bishop is flawless and chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Bob's Red Mill, Kohler, Chef Steps, and OXO. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. Oh, and one more thing. If you like Proof, well, be sure to subscribe so you'll get brand new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review wherever you listen? Because it really helps other people find the show.